This is the Athletic Lab Sport Performance Podcast, episode number nine. This is part two in the Q&A series with Mike Young on sprints. We're back with part two of the Sprints podcast with Mike Young. Um, thanks for joining us back in, Mike. Thanks for having me, John. So today we'll go over uh, very applied principles of what we discussed in the previous podcast. Um, so we'll get right into it here. Um, in terms of sprinting, um, there are uh, guidelines that we need to follow on um, volumes and intensities. Um, so give us a general idea of what you use and what are your general guidelines when we're referencing volumes and intensities on the track. So on the track, it's pretty simple and clear-cut, I think, uh, because we're pretty much only dealing with straight-ahead running, so uh, the, the variability of rep to rep is a little bit less than you might see when we're involving change of direction-based sports. But usually what I'll do is uh, my... Uh, rep scheme will have reps no longer than about 45 to 60 meters. Uh, if I'm trying to work on acceleration, which is what we're working on most of the time with uh, team and field-based sports, I will do uh, most of my speed work out to about 30 meters or so. Now, 30 meters is about four seconds worth of effort, give or take half a second or so. Um, and I try to limit my total volumes to around 240 meters. Uh, I found that we reach stimulus threshold somewhere around 150 to 180 meters. Uh, and then depending on what else you're doing on that particular day or the uh, physical tolerance of a given athlete, they may be able to take that all the way out to 300 or so meters. Uh, now that's not all that much total volume. That means if you're doing something like a 30 meter rep distance that you're only talking about doing somewhere between five and 10 repetitions. Now one of the other guidelines that I'll give in terms of setting up uh, sprint practices would also be the rest that you take with each rep. Uh, we could design a sprint practice uh, that looks great on paper in terms of the sets and reps and distances for each rep, but if we're not prescribing rest appropriately, then we could completely lose the desired stimulus that we're trying to achieve from the workout. For example, if we did a workout that is kind of a classic acceleration workout, 8 times 30 meters, uh, that looks great on paper. It fits the basic recommendations for volume and rep distance and so forth. But if we rest only 30 seconds per rep, we're going to find that very quickly we are no longer truly working on speed development. We're maybe even getting into uh, anaerobic lactate work if the athlete isn't, isn't all that fit. Uh, and we're certainly going to see a drop off in performance after about two or three reps and we've actually seen this in-house when we put athletes on timing gates and we test them and we allow them to uh, sprint with insufficient rest. Usually what I like to see is uh, in a true speed power athlete like a 
football player or track and field sprinter or jumper or, or a bobsleigh athlete, I'd like to see somewhere on the order of one minute of rest for every 10 meters of running. Uh, that means that for a 30 meter sprint, they're taking as much as three minutes of rest. In some cases, maybe even more. Uh, for more hybrid type athletes, athletes that do have a more aerobic component to their sport, something like a soccer player or lacrosse, field hockey, that kind of thing. A lot of times they can tolerate much less rest, but it's still going to be on the order of about 30 seconds per 10 meters of running. So uh, those athletes may be able to do 30 meter sprints with uh, as little as 90 seconds of rest. Now there's a time and a place for shorting that rest, but it, it would no longer be true speed development. I think you really have to keep the rest fairly significant. Uh, longer than most athletes are interested in taking, more more than they think that they need to take in many cases, uh, to keep the quality high. As soon as they get fatigued in a sprint session, you're going to find that uh, both the quality of movement and the quality of the effort begins to drop. And at that point, you're no longer really working on speed. Speed is something that I believe needs to be worked on largely in the absence of fatigue. and. Once we start to introduce muscular, neuromuscular fatigue, and maybe even metabolic fatigue if we let those rest periods get too short, then we're no longer working on speed, at least not optimally. So if our goal is to work on speed, we have to get the rep distances correct. Uh, if it's acceleration, probably somewhere around 30, 40 meters, depending on the athlete. Uh, it's perfectly fine to go as short as 10 meters, or maybe even just a couple steps, counting step counts. Uh, we need to make sure that the total volume is correct, somewhere in the, on the order of uh, 200 to 300 meters in total volume. Uh, you could maybe go a hair below that or hair above that, at least in terms of what I found is, is uh, effective. And then we have to get the rest periods correct. And that is going to put you somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 seconds to a minute of rest for every 10 meters of running. Uh, if we are doing things that are uh, not straight ahead. Those recommendations are largely going to stay the same, but you can no longer use meters in terms of how you juggle the total volume and the rest periods. So there you have to talk about seconds in duration of effort in seconds. So if we go back to uh, my previous point about 30 meters being roughly about four seconds of effort and being capable of doing around uh, six to ten of those or five to ten of those, we're looking at around uh, 30 seconds to a minute of total effort in, in a workout. Uh, it, if we add changes of directions or jumps or uh, back pedals or that kind of thing, now it's going to slow down the time that it takes to cover a linear distance, but as long as the effort is still maximal, uh, we can still use time as the basis for prescribing rest. So in that case, for four seconds of rest, we still need to take about three to four minutes of, or three, four seconds of work, we still need to take about three minutes of rest, unless of course we're dealing with those hybrid sport athletes where that rest period may be uh, as much as, as little as half of that. And so you mentioned uh, the onset of fatigue. Um, and one thing that you can't quite do with change of direction type of athletes, but you can with track athletes that sprint a little bit more linear, um, 
in, in decrement training. So how would you set up a decrement training session and what are you looking for in terms of times uh, and drop-offs there? So this is something that I've been using uh, quite a bit uh, recently. Uh, now that timing, timing gates are a little bit more pervasive in the coaching community, I think it's something that a lot of coaches should look at. Uh, what, and this is only something really you can do with timing gates. But what you do is uh, a sprint, and we're, we, do, we do workouts based off of the decrement in performance. We prescribe volume based off of the decrement in performance rather than some predetermined number. So for example, uh, I may have a workout that's prescribed as 6 to 10 times 30 meters. So there I'm going from the low side of stimulus threshold all the way to the highest volume that I think might be of benefit. And I could time our 30 meter sprints and I look for a drop off in performance. And usually what I'm looking for is something as small as about uh, you know, three to five percent in, in performance. Uh, when you do this kind of thing, you obviously have to be looking to see that the drop-off is due to some form of neuromuscular fatigue and not just due to some absent-minded absent technical mistake, which maybe doesn't reflect the actual fatigue. But if you do it correctly and you are uh, managing the total volume based off of uh, the drop-off in performance, what you're actually doing is auto-regulating the training and individualizing it in such a way that every athlete is getting a training volume that is suitable for what they're physically capable of on that day. Not everyone is going to do the same amount within a given group. Some guys might tap out at five reps while other guys might keep going at ten. Um, so what this allows you to do is coach sensibly and you don't necessarily have to be beholden to the piece of paper that you wrote the workout on. You just allow that body, you allow that athlete's body to dictate what they can handle on that day. Uh, and th I found this to be quite effective. Uh, it, it, in the past, I think myself and other coaches just kind of used their coach's eye and watched for performance or technique to drop off. But now we have the capacity with a uh, fairly little logistical constraint to be able to set up and design training sessions where the athlete's own performance and the neuromuscular fatigue that they experience auto-regulates the total volume. So we're not just uh, putting down training sessions blindly, we can actually change things. And in some cases, you can do some interesting things. So for example, you could just cut them off completely. You could say the workout is done when we see a 3 or 5% drop off in performance from our fastest time. You could do other things like just say we're going to switch the, switch the rep distance. So perhaps if we were running something as long as 60 meters and taking splits at uh, 30 and 30, if you do see, start to see drop offs in, in the splits, then maybe you shorten the, the rep distance. Maybe you'll only go out to 45 meters or so. Uh, you could still do the same total number of reps, but you start to shorten them. So instead of doing all your reps at 60, the athlete that fatigues early could perhaps do some reps at 45 uh, after having done a handful of reps at 60. So there's some handful, a handful of things that you could do uh, by 
looking at the, the timing or the performance of the rep. And as long as the athlete is relatively consistent, it, it can be very insightful in terms of the level of fatigue that athlete is experiencing and, and what you can actually get away with and that athlete can benefit from the, in the training. Excellent. And so to reference the, the last podcast on a lot of the research, um, we did talk about um, a lot of uh, strength and reactive strength and um, kind of the vertical and horizontal forces. Now, <clears throat> in terms of max strength and reactive strength, uh, how are they important to, say, a track athlete where reactive strength might be of more importance um, down the track and maybe a, uh, a field and court sport athlete might never see or need that type of reactive strength. So how do you approach each of those types of athletes um, and maximal strength and reactive strength in the weight room? So I think, uh, as we did discuss in the last podcast, when field and court sport athletes tend to talk about speed, they're typically just talking about acceleration. And in track and field, a lot of times, uh, an athlete and coach, when they refer to speed, is referring to top end speed or 100 meter time, which is a combination of acceleration, top speed, and speed endurance. Uh, this discrepancy between how different populations interpret the word speed uh, has led to some uh, disparity in terms of how different coaches think different athletes should train. I think there is a pretty significant body of research which suggests that getting flat out stronger in basic movements like the squat and deadlift and even the leg press shows up in uh, the research literature has a pretty direct correlation with improving acceleration speed. Um, I think anyone that denies this uh, is at risk of both their own bias uh, as well as just being in denial from what, what there is loads of research evidence suggesting or confirming and that's that getting stronger uh, certainly up to uh, 2.2 times body weight low, that's what I'm, I'm, the numbers that I have seen in the research literature, will make you faster out to as long as 30 meters or 40 yards. And that relationship is unbelievably strong for the first 10 or 20 meters. Uh, so you can choose to ignore that research, but I think if you do, you're potentially leaving some performance on the table because uh, you can get stronger, or you certainly can get faster by getting stronger in those uh, first 10 meters. And, and that's a, a value even for a 100 meter athlete because 10 or 20 meters, while not as important to a 100 meter athlete as a field and course sport athlete, that's still as much as 10 or 20% of your race. So why would you want to leave out some room for improvement if you if you could? Now, I don't think you need to be uh, powerlifting world record holder strong in these types of movement patterns, but I do think we, we need to develop basic squat, deadlift, uh, lower extremity strength up to a certain point um, before we really start to focus on more advanced activities, especially when we're concerning ourselves with acceleration. Uh, those types of movement patterns are much more concentrically based, tend to be much slower, tend to be much more about absolute force generation uh, rather than how quickly we can produce that force. Uh, 
uh, as we move down the track or as we move into more upright sprinting, whether we're on the track or the field, and we're basically moving at a higher velocity, that's when those same types of strength qualities, which were extremely important over the first 10, 10 meters to maybe as long as 40 meters, they start to uh, become much less of a correlation with performance. Uh, you know, I think if you look at the top 100 meter sprinters of all time and look at their uh, fastest 10 meter segment times, and we, we kind of tease those guys out, I think you'd pretty quickly see that uh, the fastest 10 meter segment has almost nothing to do, no, no correlation with, uh, say, squat strength. Right? There's plenty of guys that can squat a truck that couldn't come anywhere close to the 13-ish uh, meters per second that would be necessary to, to run an elite 100 meters, 10-meter uh, segment. And likewise, we have these guys running 13 meters per second or so, and they can't come anywhere close to achieving, you know, uh, two or two, two and a half times body weight squat. So uh, I think we do have to recognize that there is difference. As with anything, coaches need to pick and choose their battles to some extent. I have not found it particularly hard to get athletes to that two times body weight full squat range. Um, so I do invest time getting them there. Uh, we don't pursue it much beyond that. I don't make it a uh, the goal of our training, but it is an outcome of the stuff that we're doing to make athletes faster, period. It is very it ends up making them stronger in the squat, and that tends to be very highly correlated with acceleration. Uh, again, in upright sprinting, things are a little bit different. The ground contacts are a lot faster, the movements are a lot more reflexive or a lot more eccentric or at least isometrically based. And in these types of uh, movements, in these types of uh, ground contacts and uh, sprinting, sprinting uh, requirements at upright sprinting, the stuff that we do in the weight room is going to have much less relevance and we have to kind of recognize that uh, and I think we can put a lot of the arguments at bay when we recognize that yes strength does impact speed but only for short distances uh, requiring acceleration and beyond that there is little direct benefit there's, di there's certainly a benefit but there's uh, less direct benefit if we want to see a some kind of crossover or carryover from weight room work to the track in upright sprinting, I think we need to get a little bit more uh, creative in what we do. I think typical weight room methodology of squat heavy, pull heavy, even Olympic lift is not really going to cut it all that well, especially with more advanced athletes where we're seeing that uh, they're, uh, they're achieving better, more specific stimuli uh, doing things like plyometrics and even sprinting than they could ever achieve in the weight room. And to a closely, closely related question here, um, concentric and eccentric forces uh, in sprinting, uh, whether we're speaking of a track athlete or um, field and court sport athlete, um, why we need both. And I think uh, it, it, again, a closely related question to that max strength and more elastic uh, style qualities, but uh, why, why do we need both? So early on in acceleration, the same qualities that allow us to get ourselves moving from rest are very concentrically based. So there's certainly always going to be an eccentric 
portion of the muscle contraction and an isometric and then a, followed by an eccentric. But early on, the uh, power generation that is occurring is largely concentric based or the ratio is much more dependent on our concentric abilities. As we get faster and the ground contacts become shorter and the impact becomes greater, then the eccentric qualities become much more related to the limiting factors or, or how fast we can sprint. So this is partly what's explaining the fact that um, traditional weight room methodology like pulling heavy and squatting heavy and that kind of thing relates very well to acceleration because in those types of movement patterns that we do in the weight room uh, they tend to be oriented towards concentric force generation. The weight room is not really a great tool or not really a great environment for developing eccentric capacities at a super high level. And the reason for that is that we typically assess weight room performance with how much weight we can move concentrically. And the problem with this is that we are about 15 to as much as 200% uh, more physically capable of producing force eccentrically than we are concentrically. So the weight room uh, leaves a lot on the table in terms of that ratio, right? 15 to 200% depending on what research literature, what speed, what joint we're looking at. So when we talk about the squat and you say what your squat max is, you're talking about your concentric force generating capacity and your concentric force generating capacity in the strongest range of motion, right? So if, if we're trying to test the back squat, for example, we're really looking at how strong you are uh, concentrically in the weakest range of motion. Now, typically when we look at the the uh, joint angles and the ground contacts and the muscle contractions that are occurring at top speed, we're seeing much more open joint angles at the hip and knee. Uh, so that's, that's going to even exacerbate that ratio that we talked about earlier because uh, the squat max is assessed as the concentric force generating capacity at your weakest range of motion, right? If we were just to do a half squat, that number would be higher and a quarter squat it would be even higher because of the leverage and the uh, muscle mechanics and so forth. So, uh, and those are the same positions that we achieve in, in upright sprinting. So we really do need to work on both concentric and eccentric and there, there's actually some interesting evidence that is kind of coming out now uh, an interesting paper in which uh, Franz Bosch is, uh, is, is a part of and that basically suggesting that uh, isometric contractions are super important um, and, and I wouldn't necessarily disagree with this. I think a lot of it comes down as a matter of semantics. Uh, you know, if, if we can isometrically contract the actual muscle and allow the tendons to do a lot of the work elast elastically, um, you know, really I think that's quite similar to what a lot of us might refer to as a uh, eccentric uh, movement of the entire musculotendinous unit. So, uh, but concentrically, I think that's the dominant quality early on, and that ratio shifts to a more eccentric slash isometric later on in the movement pattern. So I think 
Uh, it would be foolish to, again, just think that we need to work one or the other. Uh, you know, plyos tend to be very eccentrically dominant, especially if we're doing them, uh, I think, in the way that they're intended to be performed. Uh, conversely, weight room tends to be very con uh, concentrically dominated. So people that say, oh, I just do plyos, they're leaving out one half of the equation. People that just say, oh, I get faster in the weight room, they're likewise leaving out uh, one half of the equation. Uh, there's there's no reason that I could justify not spanning the entire muscle contraction continuum or force velocity continuum as these are things that we see occur when we're actually sprinting as long as we're taking it out to like 30, 40 meters and certainly if we take it out beyond that uh, we're going to see the entire continuum at play. And so to our to our final question here um, when we look at sprinting, the action is pretty much the same, especially if you're using the same surface, same surface, surface every day. Um, what are some things that we can do that complement sprinting uh, that can help uh, reduce some overuse type of injuries, and, but also maybe serve as a way to improve performance? So I think this is actually one of the. Uh big benefits of the weight room is that you'll have a, a fairly similar neuromuscular specificity in terms of the weight room to sprinting. While it's the velocities are t way slower and so forth, I think you can see a neuromuscular and movement pattern similarity uh, to sprinting that will carry over both in terms of uh, indirect benefit on performance but also uh, directly impact injury resistance. So weight room is a great way to do it. Uh, but there are a handful of other things you can do. Obviously, plyometrics are are fantastic. Uh, we need to be very careful in terms of prescribing total volumes there because much like sprinting, they need to be a quality activity where the contraction type and the movement quality needs to be uh, of the highest order for us to avoid injury and to see the desired training stimulus out of it. Uh, you can be just as specific with the plyometric activity or exercise that you choose uh, relative to the desired stimulus as you are with what you do in the weight room. So, you know, in the weight room we might say, okay, the, we want to work on acceleration. Uh, we're going to pair that with an activity like squats because it's complementary, low joint angle. Uh, low joint angles, low movement velocity, highly concentric. You could do the same thing with plyometrics. Uh, so instead of doing things like stiffness jumps or reactive jumps or maybe speed bounding, we do things like short jumps where we're doing standing long jumps, uh, standing triple jumps, maybe vertical jumps in place where we're, we are starting from a, a position of zero velocity with no inertia and then uh, no momentum and then making overcoming our own inertia and getting ourselves moving as rapidly as we can. Uh, so we can pair, pair plyometrics uh, to what we're trying to achieve in our speed development in much the same way as we could in the weight room. Uh, similarly, if you were trying to, in the weight room, if you were trying to work on uh, top end speed on a given day, you might do partial range of movement type, type work. Uh, you might do uh, things that are involving higher velocities or more reflexive elastic type things, um, perhaps things from a hang uh, or 
maybe if you had the had access to flywheel devices where you can eccentrically overload or maybe uh, using two up one down type protocols to to uh, overload eccentrically that might be what you do in the weight room and then on the in the plyometrics, you could do things like stiffness jumps or downhill, downhill or uh, drop drop jumps, that kind of thing, to overload the uh, stiffness and elastic component. Um, in terms of injury prevention, I think it's not as sexy as uh, some of this performance enhancement stuff that we're talking about, but I think it's no less important. I think the uh, the death knoll for a lot of speed power athletes is that they get injured, and then if you Training could be going really well, but as soon as you get injured, you start to take steps back. And uh, it's much better to take incremental steps forward, uh, small but incremental steps forward, than to get greedy and take big leaps forward in performance, uh, but only have a shortcoming in your training and miss miss a lot of time to your injury where you're taking one step forward, one step back. I'd rather take a quarter step forward every day. So you can do a handful of things like uh, tempo and tempo type running and hurdle mobility and uh, weight room circuits and body weight training circuits as long as they're on, on the appropriate day I think and spaced far enough away from our, our speed power development that you're not going to see a negative effect. I think they can be very beneficial in uh, increasing the athlete's likelihood uh, for injury resistance, um, you know, I think there's a growing body of research to suggest that the eccentric hamstring strength, even in relatively contrived active movements like uh, Nordic hamstring curl, can be a little bit of a, uh, a, a blue pill, so to speak, for reducing the likelihood of injuries. You can. Uh, do eccentric hamstring curls and even though it's a, a very unusual non-athletic movement you can actually reduce the likelihood for injury and there's there's a lot of debate over why that might be the case and I could certainly do without eccentric hamstring curls or not a, a play a very minor role in, um, in in training for me I rarely actually do them but I think we have some take-home points there and that uh, activities like that where we create this huge contraction through an overloaded eccentric on, on a single muscle uh, can provide a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of armor if you will for uh, injury resistance um, so it, training at all times should be balanced it should be holistic um, you know while it's tempting to go overboard and just get greedy and do more of the sexy speed power type stuff and lift heavy and sprint hard and do a lot of plyometrics uh, we need to do some of that lower intensity, higher volume work um, to increase our likelihood for injury and to uh, improve overall wellness and adaptability to training. All right, that's it for this one, guys. So that's the finishing up part two. Um, if you guys have any questions, feel free to email uh, Mike at athleticlab.com or john.grace at athleticlab.com, and we'll try to get back to you pretty soon. But thanks, Mike, again for coming up on uh, part two. Thanks, John.